Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting week covering your Chicago White Sox. Our friend Nick is on vacation this week, but Jordan Lazowski and I are here to cover the incredible, incredibly exciting baseball team. Jordan, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, Nick decided to skip out on this and went and watched a Rockies game. Instead. Like, go watch a good team, bro. <laughs> um, other than that, I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I just came back from a coaching trip in North Carolina. Want to shout those kids out. There were a few of them who were Sox fans. Um, so the 15U Midwest Stripes for USA Baseball uh, down in Cary. Awesome time. Awesome kids. Cool, cool experience. But unfortunately, coming back and talking some White Sox baseball with you, Duke. Yeah, you know, that's uh, I wish I could take a vacation to Colorado um, during this absolute albatross of a baseball season. But, you know, here we are every week, every week, Nick, every week. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to say too much because I know I'm going to be missing next episode. So I'm not going to get myself in too much trouble here. Oh, every week, Les, every week. But anyway, (laughs) it's it's great to hear, Um, you know, obviously I was in Chicago last weekend. Brutal weekend of baseball. Honestly, really enjoyed the city. Not thinking about the White Sox. So um, big shout out to that. Big shout out to my fiance who helped me have an incredible time down the city. She always loves walking around the river and everything like that. So that was awesome. Um, We have quite a bit to cover in this episode, including being joined by our own Sox on 35th contributor, Adam Kaplan. Very good conversation. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. So, since the last time we recorded this podcast, um, obviously with our last episode, we have white, we had White Sox Dave on here. We discussed the entire TA7 fallout between him and you know Ramirez. Obviously, we kind of thought we were covering a lot of long-standing information. Then the next day, all hell breaks loose in the world of the Chicago White Sox. Um, we get information about um, Yasmani Grandal and Tim Anderson allegedly having an altercation at some point in the season, some point after the All-Star break or before or after the All-Star break. Can't totally remember. Regardless, it's all just shenanigans. Um, Kenya Middleton berates the White Sox culture. Um, Lance Lynn came out and basically confirmed most everything that Middleton said. Um, the White Sox scoreboard, uh, person forgot to put Middleton's name on the scoreboard. And I'm saying forgot very loosely. Um, and Rick Hahn, um, responded to the White Sox Twitter cesspool, um, of sorts. It has been just an absolutely storm of a week just to lack of a better term it has been just an absolute nightmare of a week if you are a Chicago White Sox fan if you are a person who works for the Chicago White Sox Jordan how are you feeling about it I know I I just I'm always the person looking for a vibe check when this team just seems to be drowning but um what what are your initial thoughts of all the information we've received about this team in the last week yeah, it's it's funny. It's like every time you thought like it can't possibly get worse than this right now, something else came out or a new report dropped and it just kept going and going and going. I'll start with the things that didn't bother me as much. The Keenan Middleton um, scoreboard fiasco, like 
if if people honestly think the Sox did that intentionally, I just I don't see where like what did you think they thought they were going to get away with that? I don't agree with them doing that intentionally. The the whole thing about Twitter being a cesspool or whatever. He's right. It is get like get mad at me if you want, but Twitter's not fun. Like it's great for information, it's great for connecting with people. But it kind of stinks at times, and I think we've all admitted that at times too. Um, and and I get he's in a Rickon is in a very frustrating position of trying to respond to the things I do agree with, and that's most of Keenan Middleton's comment. It's like for a long period of time this year, we've said a couple things. We said number one in spring training, you know, how is the World Baseball Classic going to affect Pedro Grafal? Apparently, it affected him finding the leaders. And that cascaded throughout the season and into the All-Star break and into the trade deadline and into where we are today. So, like, none of that necessarily surprises me because of how we started this converse- these conversations in spring training, where it was, you know, we all raised red flags because, you know, it's a new manager trying to create a new culture, a new style, and he's doing it without his leader. Now, you can debate how good these leaders were. Maybe the Sox were wrong to assume guys were leaders and they just simply weren't. Um, But still, you're into August now and you didn't have the leaders you thought you had. You have players continuing to say, you know, they don't really view themselves as the leaders, which is fine. But if you didn't have the leaders you thought you had and players are self-aware enough to know that, hey, I'm probably not the guy to be the vocal leader type guy. Where does that leave you? That's my biggest concern is, yeah, none of this is ultimately surprising, but where where does that leave you as a team? How do you fix this? You know, there's there, that's a very, very loaded question to finish that with. Um, just, just to touch on a couple of things quick. Cause I kind of fired through a lot of it. Um, I thought the Kenny Middleton thing was funny with the scoreboard intentional or not. People need to lighten up a little bit. Like eh, whatever, you know what, if the white Sox were being petty, honestly, that's probably the most care. That's the most like passion they've shown all year. I guess that would be the best way I put it. Um, you know, and with the Lance Lynn stuff, um, I think a lot of people kind of took it as like Lance was just like really kind of just hitting the organization over the head. And there was kind of some insinuation towards Lance Lynn in that conversation. It felt a little bit more that Lance was wearing it. You know what I mean? He was kind of admitting like, yeah, you know, I, I don't think any of us really did our part in that sense. You know, I, I don't think it was just him pointing blame. And I think that's something that Lance has done really well over the course of his career is not necessarily pointing blame, being able to acknowledge when he's playing poorly or when things are going poorly in the locker room or when he's not doing his part. And I thought that was kind of what he was addressing in that point. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that. Um, Twitter is a cesspool, but um, when, when it, when it comes, when it comes to leader, Oh, you're just going to slide that in and move on. Oh, okay. what even more do I need to add, dude? I could, I could post the most lukewarm tweet in the world and I will have people like saying horrendous things about my like maternal parents. Like I, I like, I don't know what to say. Like you guys know what Twitter is. It just kind of, it is what it is at this point. Like Rick, Rick Hahn said a lot of dumb things in the, in, in the last couple years. And like, you, you can quote, you can quote any of them. The Twitter one, 
<laughs> okay, Rick. I'll, He's probably I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let that one slide, Rick. Um, but yeah, you know, I I know you were kind of insinuating the Luis comments about how he doesn't see himself necessarily as a leader and kind of as someone who just kind of go tries to go by example. You know, I I hate to look at at the past. But, like, it, it sounds eerily similar to kind of, like, the way that Jose Abreu used to carry himself in the locker room. He was very much just a mm-hmm. uh, show it every day. You know, doesn't need to be super vocal. Got along with everybody super well. But it never really felt like he was that voice in the locker room that we all kind of expected him to be. And, you know, some people's, some people's style just isn't like that. You know what I mean? There are a lot of players around the league who aren't leaders, who are just absolute superstars, but they just kind of show up and want to do it every day. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's the way that Jose showed a guy like Luis Robert to kind of carry himself. But it does become a little concerning when you see a guy like Pedro Grafal struggle mightily to really bring this locker room together. And if you don't have those strong leaders on this team, you're the leader. Like you are the guy then you're like, you have to be the guy because we've seen baseball teams that didn't have like this, like set one, one guy who is like, you know, having a get on everybody's ass the entire time, like, because they had a strong manager. And that's, that's really where a lot of, a lot of great baseball teams have come from is having that strong guy at the top to be able to kind of keep everybody in line. And like, I'm not saying you have to be an authoritarian, but like that kind of feels like what Grafal is struggling to do right now is kind of keep these guys in line, you know, say, say what you want. And, you know, Jordan, I know you have your opinions on what an Ozzie Gein led managed team would look like in current day baseball. And you, you do make a lot of good points on that. But, you know, sometimes you really need to have that, like, voice of the locker room to be able to kind of just, you know, take the beatings over the head, not really care, being able to hold people accountable no matter how unpopular it would be. And uh, we just we just simply haven't had that at the manager position in a good, good long while, you know. It just doesn't seem like anybody's really stepped up. And a guy like T.A., who really seemed like he would be the guy to step up, he's obviously dealing with some shit and it's hard for him to step up. And sometimes when your top leader doesn't, can't do it, somebody else has to step up and we just flat out haven't had that. Right. Like not everyone need, again, don't get me wrong. Not everyone needs to be just because you're the best player on the team. Doesn't mean you need to be the vocal leader. Like it's very telling. Like you said, Duke, it's very telling that, you know, Luis Robert comes up under the wing of Jose Abreu and ends up being the same type of clubhouse guy as Jose Abreu. I think that makes a lot of sense. The problem is you got to find those guys eventually. Um, having a manager do it all the time, like, yes, but also, like, having a manager, rela- a relationship with your manager and the vibes a manager setting in the clubhouse is still going to be different than the players. Um, and I think, it, you know, like, for Joe Kelly, Lance Lynn, all these guys to be so frustrated over the lack of leadership, it's like, that was your job. Like, if you wanted to set the tone differently for this team, you guys were the long-term vets. Like, you got mad because, and again, it's fine. You got mad because the team started turning south, and you saw it's like, hey, I'm coming to the end of my career. Like, I want to get the hell out of here. And instead of trying to fix the culture, you're just like, yep, is what it is. Get me out. Get me to a team that's ready to win right now because I only got so many bullets left in my arm. I think that's the frustrating thing when the like those types of guys come out and are like, yeah, there was an issue in the clubhouse. That was your job. Like Keenan Middleton, I I get that's not your job. You're a new guy. You're a you're kind of a vet, but you're a reliever. You don't have the pedigree of a Lance Lynn or a Joe Kelly. 
that's their job. That's what frustrated me most about all of that. And yeah, you've got to find these leaders at some point. How are you going to build them though? How are like, is it going to be Andrew Vaughn? Like Rickon and Pedro Grafal seem to think we're not even totally sure he's the long-term answer at first base. So it's like, who's going to be those guys that really step up? I don't know where you're getting them from. I think you maybe got to do a better job getting them in free agency moving forward. And again, it speaks to how important it is to eventually build a winning team when you come out of a rebuild. Because if you don't, there will be veterans lined up who bought your sales pitch and now feel like they didn't get what they needed out of it. And you kind of shortchange them for valuable seasons on their career that they can't get back. And then they're going to turn on you and become different types of guys once they leave. I think that's a really good point you made there at the end, uh, specifically about you know people wasting years with a team where they thought they could compete. And, you know, I know we traded for Lance Lynn, but he signed an extension with us, kind of with the idea that like he was going to be playing in October every single year. You know what I mean? And right. that's that's really where you know we. I don't want to say the White Sox failed Lance Lynn per se because the last two seasons of Lance were a little rough, but it, it's. He was he was kind of sold to bill of goods that never really paid, you know, and that's and that's that's kind of a shame. Um, I guess kind of my thing, and you know, I know we've brought this up before, and I know it's a bit of a cop out, and I know somebody got just absolutely decimated for saying it pub- publicly, and I don't necessarily agree with the whole point, but it, I almost wonder, just based on his intensity alone, how much Liam being out of the clubhouse to start this year. And really how much he's been out of the clubhouse with, you know, the things he's been dealing with has really affected this team. And I almost wonder how much he really kept things together beforehand. Because if I think of like a vocal leader who is just constantly showing it every single time he's out there and, you know, holding everyone accountable, it's Liam. And Liam holds himself to an extremely high standard and he holds other people to that same extremely high standard. And that's something that is... That, I think that more than anything is what's lacking. You know, Luis Robert, the way he handles himself, that's totally fine. But like, it would be great to have that superstar level of player that holds everyone else to that same level. And, you know, that's, that's part partially what we kind of thought we had in Tim and, you know, somewhat, maybe we still do have that in Tim, you know, maybe, maybe in a year where he could completely focus on baseball. But, you know, I, I really think like we saw this significant drop off once Liam missed missed the time at the beginning of this year. And, uh, you know, it just felt like there was a different vibe coming into the season. You know, you, you signed an Andrew Benintendi. Andrew's not going to be that guy. You know, he's he's a guy who wants to be a contributor on a good baseball team, but he's not, he's not going to be the guy, you know. And Andrew Vaughn, I think I think that's that's a decent point to make because I think Andrew has shown character in some, some heated moments. Honestly, I, I think – I don't think he gets enough credit for – the way he's handled, you know, jumping in the middle of, of scrums, you know, grabbing TA and carrying him off was huge. Honestly, I think he deserves a lot of credit for that because that's something that, uh, you know, TA that you chance ruining a relationship by doing that, but by kind of sucking it up and doing that and saving TA from potentially either taking more damage or getting a very long suspension or completely making an ass of himself, you kind of saved him on that. So we've seen flashes of it, but we just haven't seen that consistent level of it. And I think a lot of that consistency fell off when we didn't have a guy like Liam Hendricks, you know, in the building anymore. 
and I think, uh, you know, like I, like I said off top, you know, some people might take that as a cop-out. People might say it as like, well, he only pitches one inning. How is that possible? A guy that's that juiced up all the time, he keeps everybody going. And it just didn't seem like we we had that for really all of this season. Yeah, but if you – and I don't necessarily disagree. That's not my point on this. My point is more so if you have a single point of failure – you're in trouble from the start. Like you better hope Liam's healthy all year then, because if he's your only vocal guy, uh Oh, if he gets hurt and there's something to be said too, about your only vocal guy being the closer who spends probably half the game in the bullpen sitting out there. So it's like, there's something to be said about who you chose and who you found to be your leaders. Um, I, I think that's the other side of it, too, where it's like someone on the position player side is going to have to step up here. Someone who's in it every day, who's there, who, who's battling four at-bats every day. It's like I, everyone wanted it to be Tim, and I think there are still glimpses of it. I think the fight with Grandal is a good glimpse of it. But we've also seen, in terms of how he's played on the field he's a player that kind of his vibes go as the team go we've all said it as ta goes the team it's like as this team has struggled he has not looked to be the same person and he has struggled right along with them everyone's like oh everyone's turned on ta just because he's playing bad it's like yeah that's kind of how sports work sometimes though like a lot of times players get turned on when they're not performing well ask how many fans aaron bummer has right now like that's a great example like when there are not good, when you are not playing well, you don't have fans. You don't have people publicly reaching out to back you, especially if you're considered someone who's a leader and you don't see those leadership qualities enough from them. Like, and that's how guys like Andrew, or excuse me, Elvis Andrews stay around. You saw the quotes from Griffal. Like he's in there. He's kind of this clubhouse guy and for a team that is just struggling to find someone for as bad as you can be offensively. If you can help hold the team together, help make it worth coming to the ballpark every day, you end up sticking around more often than not. And you can debate the merits of whether that's right, but it's something that you can't place a number on somebody stepping up and being a leader. Something that, you know, again, if Tim was struggling and, you know, they still felt he was the leader, maybe you cut Andrews by now. But if they're really struggling that hard to find who that leader is, that's it's frustrating that it seems like Elvis Andrews and Liam Hendricks are the leaders because one is not playing well and should have been cut a while ago, and the other has been injured all year. Like, you are in a world of trouble when you do that. Well, you know, and I think that kind of goes into – a conversation we had a couple pods ago about how this team was built from the top. Um, you know, really when we did this rebuild and really the time that we wanted to uh, make the run, there just wasn't there that, that type of thing wasn't built in mind. Like you signed a Liam Hendricks, not only for, you know, the leadership per se, but you know, the fact that he's a great closer, you know, obviously that was kind of the, the selling point. The fact he was a great leader kind of came along with it. But it, it kind of goes in with how the White Sox build their rosters. In if one thing goes wrong, we're fucked. <laughs> I, I apologize for not having a better term to put it, but like that—that kind of seems like how it's gone with leadership. Like if one leader goes down, uh oh, 
you know, you know what I mean? Like, we're like, well, what are we going to do now? Like we, we weren't prepared for this because we run ourselves so, so thin that like when we have our entire, entire team that was supposed to be out there, out there for a week stretch. Yeah, we look great. But when any of those guys are missing, like it's such a fall off. And I feel like that's what it was with our leadership. You know, I, I'm not saying you have to go sign guys strictly for leadership because that's how you end up with nine hands or Alberto's. But like you need to have those types of guys that can kind of get people going, you know, that are well respected in the locker room that can, you know, keep people up, you know, keep people accountable. You know, somebody that if this guy's coming and telling me that I'm playing bad, I, I don't really have something to turn around and be like, oh, well, who are you to say this? You know, look at what you're doing, because that's usually how a negative type of player will end up, you know, responding to that. That's why, like. A guy like Leary Garcia was a brutal type of leader to have in that situation because even if he tried to hold guys accountable, it's like, Leary, what in the hell have you done lately? You know what I mean? So it, it's very difficult. And when you have a guy like Tim Anderson struggling, it makes it harder for him to hold guys accountable as well. You know, so that's why, you know, and it kind of just encapsulates to our entire original point, Jordan, is when you have super, when it, it's really hard to not have a superstar be that guy, because when you're a superstar, it doesn't matter if you're in a slump, you can hold these, you can hold these guys accountable whenever you want, because you've, you've proven who you are and you've proven what you can do and you've proven what you can do on a consistent basis. And let, let's put it how it is. Like the Atlanta Braves have rostered Charlie Culberson for a significant amount of time this season without having played a game like he has one at bat all season and he spent like 50 days on the roster when he wasn't even playing the Braves could afford to do that and he's probably just a vibes guy because the Braves are good their stars stay on the field their stars are truly stars and you can afford like Elvis Andrews could probably be a bench player on this team if there was someone else who had stepped up the problem is nobody else stepped up so you end up putting yourself in a situation where it's like, I physically can't lose this guy right now because, you know, the roster stings. I don't have someone beating down the door to take Andrews's at bats. And on top of all of that, he's like, I can't fake IL him and leave him as a leadership guy. Like it's, it's a weird situation they're in. And again, whether you want to say they're screwed or it's single points of failure, however you want to put it, it's like, to have these problems when you talked about your entire beginning of your tenure being about finding leaders and creating a culture, you know, it's, you can debate the merits of bringing Grafal back. It's like, this wasn't his team. This was an acquired team. He brought in one of his guys. Do you give him another shot at building a team his way, quote unquote? I don't know. But I think it sends just a terrible message at the same time to be on your third manager in three years next year, too. So the Sox have put themselves in a very difficult position right now on either side of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's to the point where if do you think you can salvage the culture or do you have to completely reset the culture? Because if you're going to reset the culture, you're really hovering around that point where it's like you you have to blow this up. You know, and I, I don't think that's that's something the Sox are ready to do yet. So, like, they really need to consider with Grafal next year if they're bringing him back or if they're not bringing him back. They really need to consider that decision because, you know, like you said, having that many different leaders in the clubhouse, it, it's it'll be to the point where players just aren't going to care who's in there anymore because it's just going to be like, well, 
it's kind of a revolving door. You know, we'll see if you make it, but if you don't halfway through the year, if we're sitting at 500 and we don't buy a new, well, I guess we're going to see who the next guy is. You know what I mean? Cause that, that type of culture really does, does come along. You know, you see it in other sports, you see it in basketball, you see it in football. You know, if, if there's no leadership at the top of it, uh, the thing falls apart pretty easy. You know, even, even if you have the strongest leaders in the world, you know, as far as that, the guys that are playing on the field. So it's, it, it is a, it is a tough position for the white Sox to be in right now. And, you know, you really wonder what the long-term play is going to be here, but you know, I, it, it's easy to be cynical in times like this, because we've seen that it feels like there's not really a long-term plan here. You know, it feels like we're trying to hold on to this contention window as long as we can, because we thought, you know, Rick Hahn and company thought they had it figured out. They thought that they had, the the process down it's kind of similar to what the philadelphia 76ers in basketball are doing right now they are holding on for dear life that that little run that they did of tanking for three four years in a row to see if they could salvage it and it's it's not looking like it's gonna happen you know what i mean and it, it feels like the white Sox very easily could fall into that trap and go down that same road and it's going to be tough sledding for a good while. Even if we make the playoffs somehow in that run, which gosh, that would be a godsend at this point. I I don't see it going much farther than that. If we continue to try to salvage this type of culture that we have right now, you know, even, even something as simple as having a, just a full scale organization meeting at the end of the year, no media, anything, and really just getting a thought process of, Hey, air it out. Where do we feel like we're going who wants to be here? Who doesn't want to be here? If you have grievances with somebody, we need to get it out. And I almost wonder how many team meetings we've had similar to that so far this season or pff, at all in the last five years. You know what I mean? Because sometimes it's something that's needed. You know, you see it in basketball all the time. You know, I, I, I just, it's something I see with cultures across all sports that sometimes if you can't just let it out, you end up with the situation like with Yasmani Grandal and Tim Anderson, where it's just something boils over for whatever stupid reason and an altercation happens that really had no business happening because people are walking on eggshells and people feel like they can't speak up and tell people how they really feel about things at a certain time. And it builds, you know, and that's something that, you know, meatball take all you want. The 2005 White Sox didn't have. That was something where it was very, very open. Everyone knew exactly how they felt about each other. And, uh, that's that's kind of what a winning culture is, and that's just something that I don't feel like we have. And it's right now they're in a hard part trying to change that culture, right? I mean, we've identified a couple of veterans still sitting around, Elvis, Grandal. It's like, what are these guys still doing on the roster at a certain point? Well, there's no immediate option for a catcher, so Grandal has to stay until Corey Lee gets healthy and Sebi Zavala gets healthy. Elvis Andrews, you know, everyone's calling for Lennon Sosa, myself included, in preparation for this podcast, I took a look at his stats today. He's hitting 205 in August in 12 games. He has a sub 700 OPS both the past two months in Charlotte. And he's taken a step back in terms of walks, strikeouts have peaked. This night might not be the guy. If you can't do it in Charlotte, you're, you might not be the guy anymore. It's like if you want to reset this culture, you got to get new guys in. You can't do it at this point in the season because. You can't trade anybody. You're really not going to pick up anybody worthwhile at this point. And if you want to reset the culture with new young guys, well, one of them that everyone wants to call for at second base isn't performing up to standard and is taking a huge step back this year. The others are either injured or really wouldn't change much in terms of just quality of talent. 
And then that next wave of prospect is still in double A. So you can't do anything about it in the near term either because you can't rush these kids to the majors. So now you've really put yourself in a spot where I think we've all identified, yeah, do team meetings all you want. Do whatever you need to do in terms of airing things out. But in terms of resetting the culture, you are in a spot where you physically are having a hard time doing it because there is nobody you can bring in to reset things. Well, it's it's genuinely too little too late at this point. Really, a lot of my ideas of, as far as like airing it out and everything like that, unless it's happening after the season, that's something that should have happened back in April when we were absolutely falling off a cliff. You know what I mean? It's like that that's done. More or less what I'm what I'm looking forward to at this point, because like I I don't love Elvis Andrews and, and Grandall being on this team because I wouldn't mind getting a look at one of these guys. Just to, if we are gonna roll with Grafal next year, getting a kickstart as far as like seeing what the culture with Grafal being a little bit more as the tenured guy looks like. But at this at, at the same time, like I really think the main focus moving forward should be Heading into spring training, nobody should feel safe about their jobs. Luis Robert, yeah, should probably feel pretty safe about his job. Dylan Cease, yeah, should probably feel pretty safe about his job. That should be about it. Even if guys are safe with their jobs, you need to go in with this idea that, like, hey, if you want a major league spot, show us why you want it. You know, come get it. Because we flat out have not played well enough the past two years for anybody to feel completely safe about their position, obviously besides Luis Robert. But, like, even if you were to do one of those false, like, Oh, who's going to, who's going to take center field? And Luis takes it a week. You know what I mean? It, sometimes you just need that sense of like guys being able to go take it. Cause you never know, maybe a minor leaguer, maybe, a, maybe a Lennon Sosa who is, you are correct, Jordan struggled mightily. Maybe he jumps into spring training and he really shows something. You know what I mean? I, I think that's what we should be focusing on moving forward. Cause obviously a lot of these veteran guys, they're not going to be here next year anyway. And this, this rest of the season's a wash. So like, I really think the focus needs to be the the roster, the full roster we're going to bring in in spring chaining and uh, what position is going to be open. But as far as positions that are going to be open, especially moving forward, um, we brought on uh, Sox on 30 for the contributor, Adam Kaplan, to discuss uh, uh, Andrew Vaughn, who is very much a polarizing figure as far as uh, the White Sox roster goes. Um, had a pretty good conversation with him, and uh, we are joined by him. All right, now we are excited to be joined by Adam Kaplan, uh, Sox on 35th contributor. Um, you've been on the show before, but uh, it's always it's always a pleasure to have anybody really from 35th. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Adam. Um, feel like we always have a good conversation. Um, how you been doing, buddy? How you been surviving the Sox series or Sox season? Um, how's Adam doing? I am doing well, guys. Happy to be back. It's only been three months since I've been asking for this, so I appreciate. Uh, you guys finally, finally bring in the A team. Bring in in the A team. All right, I like the confidence. Um, you know, I mean, to be fair, I feel like we had to give uh, we had to give Andrew Vaughn a little bit of a chance to prove himself to you before we let you go completely, uh, completely loose on him. Like I feel like you might, but um, overall, man, just happy to have you on here. Like I said, it's always nice to have different contributors on. Um, and I know, uh, I know you have definitely got some piss and vinegar in regards to who we're going to be talking to. Um, but obviously, you know, just kind of set the tone for anyone, you know, who hasn't been paying attention. Um, Andrew Vaughn, obviously one of the uh, more polarizing players on the entire roster. 
um, was asked to fill in the shoes of one of the greatest White Sox of all time and Jose Abreu at a position at first base that has really just had nothing but excellence at it really for the most part of the last 20 plus years. Um, even if it was Frank Thomas, you know, horribly ground taking grounders at first base, regardless, couldn't leave his bat out. Um, this is a guy who has obviously been a topic of a lot of your articles, Adam, um, a guy who, um, you obviously really do have some strong opinions on. Um, what is your evaluation on the season Vaughn's been having so far? Um, have your opinions of him changed? You know, have you ever really had a super high opinion of him? Where are you at with Andrew Vaughn really at this point in the season? Yeah, Andrew Vaughn has been like really my favorite topic to write about. I actually didn't like intend to do it, but over the like the past like since he became a rookie on the White Sox, I started writing for Sox on 35th. And I think because for the most part he's been kind of like a blank slate because we didn't really know what he was, right? Because he didn't have any previous experience in the minors. He was a high draft pick. Um, he was thrown into left field like immediately before the 2021 season. Honest, you Google Sox on 35th, Adam Kaplan, Andrew Vaughn. I got like 10 billion articles about him. Um, to answer your question, when he first came up, I was always of the opinion that he's super young. He was thrown into a defensive position he never played before, probably ever, and was still kind of solid, right? He had about like a 93 WRC plus, obviously definitely below average, but still felt like he could put it together. There were moments and spurts would be like, okay, we can see like why he was drafted so high. Um, and coming into the season, now that he was playing first, that the aforementioned Jose Breu was leaving, I wrote an article for Sox on 35th called The Lofty Expectations of Andrew Vaughn. And I was like, this is kind of the season where he needs to prove it. He's playing his natural defensive position. He's had a couple years now in the majors. Let's see what he can do. And what he can do is kind of, eh, he's, he's literally definitionally a tad bit above average offensively and below average defensively. And that stinks because he's a first baseman, a position that basically anyone in baseball can play. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely does get a little difficult to justify him playing first base without with, really without this like power surge we've been expecting from him. You know, there are times where Andrew genuinely does look like a good major league hitter and you see a little bit of like why he was the prospect that he, you know, we brought in. Um, but it, it, it can definitely get frustrating with Andrew when we just continue to not see the power numbers um, and his ability to get on base is lacking at best. And usually when you have a, a good hitting first baseman, usually one of the cat, like one of the plus sides of that is those guys usually walk at a pretty increased rate because pitchers usually don't want to deal with them because they're usually in the middle of the order. That's something we really haven't had with Andrew. And I feel like, uh, you know, just kind of add off, add off some of your points with some of these expectations. Um, I feel like a lot of the people who have defended Andrew in the past, um, they, they go to 2021 quite a bit with him playing different defensive positions to kind of give him that pass. But at the end of the day, he's played almost 400 games in the major leagues. Like it, it's about the point where we kind of have to rip the bandaid off. And if we don't start seeing some big production out of Andrew, I think we really have to, start taking a look at what we're really doing at first base and what the future of first base looks like, you know? And I think that really gets complicated when you consider the fact that we just traded a guy like Jake Berger, who sure strikes out quite a bit and doesn't walk very well, but was certainly a power bat who could definitely play a competent first base. Who would you rather have going forward at first base? Would you, would it be Jake Berger with the way he played on the White Sox 
or Andrew Vaughn? I advocated, um, oh gosh, I was on a podcast with Section 108 with Beef Loaf not long before this. We had a conversation about this topic. I can't remember exactly what I said. I think I said something along the lines of, you know, it's easier to teach power because that's a swing plane change. It's harder to teach plate discipline, which is why I said, you know, maybe teams would be more willing to trade for Andrew Vaughn and say, all right, this is a, this is a clear swing plane change difference. Like, let, let's go with the player. Um, but when you when you really dive into Vaughn, it becomes more of, it's like, yeah, he really isn't walking at the rate you'd expect either. So maybe that argument, as I dive more into it, goes out the window. I think when you look at overall results on the field, yeah, you'd probably have to pick Berger. I think he's naturally suited for first base. I know Duke and I have argued about that ad nauseum. Uh, but I think, don't roll your eyes at me. <laughs> I think, Roll them. Uh, <laughs> roll them. Let's get some fighting going on. Yeah, we're always fighting. Don't worry. Grow up, Jordan. No, stop. that's my line. Don't you dare. That's my line. Anyway, um, I think you have to take on strictly production, um, Jake Berger. The concern is, is it um, repeatable production? Because you're striking out 30-something percent of the time. You're only walking a small fraction of the time, too. It's like you, got, you have to worry about if that's repeatable. But if you're looking at certainly play on the field, yeah, it's, it's going to be Berger. You know, and I guess I, obviously I'm a huge Jake Berger guy, so I'm gonna I'm gonna side with Jake Berger on this. Um, but really, because I think once you establish yourself as a power bat, I think walks will come a little bit easier. Whereas with a guy like Andrew Vaughn, pitchers are gonna pitchers are gonna pitch to him. He has not proven that he has a consistent power stroke. Whereas Jake, as much as he's even struck out in the past he's proven he can just crush the baseball. So like, it's almost like the, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to compare a guy like Jake Berger to like great first baseman or anything like that. But a guy I always think of is like someone like Ryan Howard, where like he wasn't necessarily great when it came to strikeouts, but like teams were so forced to walk him that his on-base percentage was usually pretty damn high. And that's, that's what I would, that's kind of what I see hopefully to be the like, best version of Jake Berger to possibly be him being somebody that is so dangerous with the bat that even if he does not have the best plate discipline, pitchers will just be forced to so blatantly walk him that he won't really have much of a choice, you know? And I don't, I don't see him going down the road of a Joey Gallo where he just flat out, you know, can't do anything, you know, besides hit for power. Um, I, I, I think, uh, I think a guy like Berger has shown every single year that he can improve upon what he had done the year, the, the year in the past. And, you know, people forget that he had a, you know, kind of a stagnant minor league development as well with a lot of his injuries, but I just haven't seen that type of development with Andrew Vaughn. And I don't, I don't even necessarily want to say that I dislike a guy like Andrew Vaughn. Cause I still feel like there might be something there. But we need to start seeing bigger flashes of it. We need to start seeing better approach because even if you're if you're not hitting for, with power, if you're not hitting for power at first base, you need to be taking walks, and he's just flat out not taking walks. So, my comparison there would be Chris Carter in terms of if you're looking for a best scenario comp for um, Jake Berger would have been like, hey, he strikes out nearly thirty percent of the time, but at least he walks about 12 percent of the time. Then it feels feels a little bit better. Um, Again, my biggest thing is, are you going to be able to 
hit homers at such a consistent rate that I can stomach you having an on-base percentage below 300. That's going to be hard to do. You have to have a above 500 slugging to even make it part of the conversation. And Berger, to his credit, has done that this year. It's more so a conversation of will that continue into the future? I don't know. But, uh, again, to get back to Adam's original question, yeah, it's you have to take someone who's at least shown the ability at times in spurts to walk and at times in spurts, and certainly more than just spurts, hit for power. That's where you look at a player like Berger and say, yeah, maybe the Sox capitalized on his um, potential value by trading him, or maybe they messed up by choosing him over Vaughn or Eloy Jimenez. Um, That's still to be seen, but in terms of what we've seen in terms of production, I don't feel like we've seen that much from Vaughn, but I'll, I mean, you're the Vaughn expert, Adam. I'll see if you might have a differing opinion on that. I don't know what Andrew Vaughn does well. Does he hit well? Not really. Does he walk well? Not really. Does he play defense well? Absolutely not. To Jake Berger's credit, he at least hits bombs. He hits burger bombs, and they are fun, and they are awesome. And, you you know, he had a, a WRC plus, I feel like, above 120, 130 for most of his playing time this year for the Sox. And it's basically all because of the home runs. I don't, despite this money ball on base percentage era where his started with a two, he had an OPS above 800 because he hit bombs. And who else on this team is doing that outside of Robert? And at least to Berger's credit, every time he's had a, his time with the Sox, he hit bombs. I, and I also think Berger could probably play first base defense better than Andrew Vaughn. He played solid third baseman this year, he's faster. I think he's more athletic at Andrew Vaughn. I, I was rooting for him for a long time. Journey, you know, I was rooting for him. Like when we talked about him on the slack for these past couple of years. And now it's to the point where he needs to prove it. And I think a lot of blame still falls on the White Sox organization for not putting through the minors at all. And it seems like when players leave, they do better. And that stinks for Andrew where he's not put in the best position possible, but at the same time, he's now, the grown man, he can take responsibility for his actions and he needs to perform better on the fields, plain and simple. He can't, he can't keep having like a one Oh six WRC plus for the rest of his career, especially playing first. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it really is kind of a difficult hodgepodge type of situation that we're kind of stuck in, you know, because I, I think, I think you make made a really good point And it's something that people don't really talk about a lot is uh, Andrew kind of skipped the minors, you know, <laughs> 2020 kind of messed all that up, but it, it, at the same time, we kind of just, we kind of needed him by necessity with the Aloy Jimenez injury. But we didn't though. Rick, Rick Hahn and this front office organization didn't have a backup. Like Andrew Vaughn was going to make that team no matter what as a DH. There was no reason they couldn't have had a backup plan. Andrew Vaughn should not have been the backup plan for a team that was supposedly contending. And that did go to the playoffs this year. I mean, we've, we've seen this team, like, I always go back to to Gordon Beckham when he first got called up by the Sox, where he came up because of an injury at third and actually performed decently well his rookie year, but didn't really perform that well after that. There was a point where I, the Sox could have brought him down to the minors. Like, you kind of need a little bit more seasoning, my guy. And due to cheapness of ownership or whatever, the Andrew Vaughn was plan A at DH, and that even shouldn't have been acceptable. 
literally can get any guy for DH, but he was so cheap that he was like, okay, we're going to now like have these articles just convincing the fan base that he's going to be awesome. And I think he's talented. I think there's a lot of talent there. It just, it hasn't shown on the field and the White Sox put him in a poor position from the get-go and it stinks. At a certain point though, it's like, I can't, he's been here three years, right? Like what, what were you going to learn in the minors that you didn't learn that you would have like, like what were you learning there that you haven't learned over the past three years at the highest level? That's the biggest difference for me. He put up decent numbers in that rookie season, 2021 could have used more seasoning. Yeah. But I'm not going to say it was the worst performance ever from a ball player who um, was forced into a difficult situation. I'm just at this point where, yeah, they put him in a bad position, but that was three or three ish years ago. Like at a certain point, you have to look at a ball player and say, Hey, I'm responsible for my play on the field. Kind of like you're saying, Adam, I'm responsible for my play in the field three years into this. Like it's no longer, Oh, because he didn't have the proper seasoning at the minor league level. This is who he is. Like, no, Things like swing plane changes or things like that to maximize power, that that's going to happen probably best at the major league level with your best coaching staff. He's proven he can hit major league pitching. Like, he's not a complete dud out there. Like, he's not like no no shots at Oscar Colas, but he's going to get a drive-by here. Like, Oscar Colas at times has looked like completely lost in the plate. And it's Andrew Vaughn's credit he hasn't. And I literally wrote an article for Sox on 35th, www.soxon35th.com. Check it out. I wrote last year that he, there was a great argument that he could have been an all-star because he was putting up, he was awesome in the first half of 2022. There's, there are moments, there are stretches where he looks like a major league player. Literally when I wrote an article this year, like kind of dissing him, I got a lot of criticism of like, no, he's actually doing solid because of his RBI numbers. He, but like, this is baseball. It's a long season. You need to be able to do it more than a series. And I get players will have bad, bad two weeks. It happens. He's having like a bad year. Yeah, it's like I don't know. It the, the the entirety of Andrew Vaughn is still very difficult for me because he's not performing poorly. He's performing above average. He's just not doing it at a level that's sustainable for long-term success as a first baseman. And I think part of that has gone into and I'm curious on, on your thoughts of it. I think a lot of that has gone into just a complete fall off all three years while he was in the majors in that second half. Is there some, I mean, you're, you're the quote unquote bond guy. Is there something you've seen over his performance in the past three years or how has his approach changed the past three years where it's like something that can explain this drastic fall off every single year so far in the second half? Yeah. So some stats to back up your point before I begin, he has a first half OPS plus of 111 and a second half OPS plus of 80. Um, if you look at his uh, home run numbers, obviously this counts a little bit of this year. So a little bit of grain of salt, but it still, so it's 32 home runs in the first half when he plays 15 home runs in the second half and Andrew Vaughn ain't hitting 17 home runs for the rest of this season to make those numbers close. Right. At, <laughs> I would actually love to hear your guys' opinion because I could say that for the first two years of his career where his just legs are tired, he's playing in the outfield, and he's just 
Um, he hasn't had to use his legs playing baseball in a long time, and it's affecting his swing. Like maybe no, you honestly the face you making is right, Duke. I think it's a silly excuse. It's like the best one I can come up with though. But like absolutely no excuse this year. Like I don't think he was playing that well per se in the first half of his uh 2023. But man, it's just like that all-star break hits and it's just it's bad. I I would love to if you guys have an opinion, that's I don't know. It, he's young. He's 25 years old. A long season shouldn't, I feel like, affect a 25-year-old, a professional baseball player who's drafted us. It's so odd to me. Which which honestly takes me to my next point is, like, how in the world is Andrew Vaughn as slow as he is, like, looking like the guy that he is? He doesn't necessarily look like somebody that's out of shape. Like, he looks like, even when he was in the outfield, like, if you didn't know he was a first baseman, you're like, okay, this guy's a not a great defensive outfielder, but we've certainly seen worse. He's not Adam Dunn playing the outfield. He was Adam Dunn playing the outfield in 2022. Literally, Baseball Savant had him as the worst outfielder defensively. I know, dude, and it was crazy because he was not that bad in 2021, but from 21 to 22, there was like this. He got worse. He had an offseason to prepare and got worse. It it almost makes you wonder, and I know this is something that like it's a little tinfoil, uh, tinfoil hat for a lot of people, but like, how much do the White Sox cover up injuries? Like, it, it, was there something that happened to his legs? Is there something that is, like, a long-term issue with his legs? Because I, like, when I watch him run down to first base, I genuinely cannot comprehend in my mind how he's running as slow as he is. Like, I've seen, like, dude, Jake Berger. You know, like, and listen, I, 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 I'm not going to sit here and say that Jake Berger is this athletic man you know, like compared to some of the most athletic baseball players in the world. Wasn't that at one point Jake Berger had like a 90% speed rating though on baseball savant? It's because like- Jake hustles. It's hustle goes a long way. And I know that sounds stupid. I know that sounds like coach speak, but like Jake Berger running full speed and actually giving it all is a fairly, fairly fast, like speedy looking guy. I mean, he's legged out doubles. He's legged out infield singles. I mean, I think there was even one point uh, during 20, or I think actually during last year, and I know it's a little bit of a joke, but I think he was like leading the league in infield singles there for a minute, which was hilarious. But this isn't the Jake Berger show. I just genuinely do Let's make it. Let's do it. We're Marlins fans now. Welcome to Marlins on 35th. Yeah, I mean, don't don't pay attention to the logo on the back. This is actually the the City Connect uh, Marlins hat. So Nice. Uh, I'm all in. (laughs) <laughs> the marlins are doing so much awesome publicity on their twitter like literally teaming up with burger king they had like half off burgers like during burgers debut like holy crap white Sox um marketing team get your butt together you are getting laughed by everybody it's crazy what happens when you embrace a fan favorite i don't know I don't know. I'm sorry. But yeah, no, I just, I don't understand what it is with Andrew Vaughn, especially when it comes to the second half. Um, You know, I, you know, you commented on the face that I made. It's because of how ridiculous it is that a guy that his a guy, his age, a guy that looks, you know, pretty athletically trim, everything like that um, is, is somehow tired in the later halves of the season. Like that doesn't fly by me. You know, like Jose Abreu didn't miss baseball games. He was never tired at any point in the season. You know, he, I'm, I'm, you know, he was maybe playing like 80%, but we were still getting something out of him. And he started playing baseball when he made like professional baseball, like 16. So like I, the whole, the whole argument with Andrew Vaughn there, 
it, it falls flat. It just makes you wonder if there's a long-term issue. Um, I think part of it is, is when he starts to get hot, it feels like pitchers, like, especially with how far the game has gone with like scouting reports, they kind of start figuring him out a little bit. You know, I think he starts getting really comfortable swinging at certain pitches for decent periods of time. And once those pitchers start switching them up, I think he kind of, uh, loses it for a little bit. At least that's kind of just my outside view, complete meatball take on it. But um, it seems like sometimes he's hitting sliders, then long periods of time he's not. Then he's hitting high fastballs, then he's letting high fastballs go. And it, it really comes in stretches. He's very streaky. And it makes me wonder how much uh, scouting departments are have, have something to do with that. Adam, before we let you go, one last thought in terms of all of us. You know, obviously, just ragging on a player for 20 minutes isn't exactly fun. Um, my question to you is what would it take for you to turn around and say, okay, I feel more confident in Andrew Vaughn over what he can do in the next eight weeks towards the end of the season. What are you going to be looking for? Is it a specific, whether it's walk rate or power, like what is the most important thing for you to start to have a little bit more confidence in Andrew Vaughn? Cause it's such a small sample size going forward. The true answer is even if he's well, I'm still going to be skeptical. But if there's truly one thing that would be like, okay, he's made a change outside of the White Sox firing everyone, bringing a new coach, and then he's all of a sudden does better, is he needs to be better when he's in batter's counts and when he's on like a 3-0 count. Because you can go to baseball reference and see like where his OPS plus is and counts. And weirdly, when he's in batter's counts and like 3-0 counts, and with three balls, he's weirdly bad and like worse. He's like better when he's in pitchers counts, which boggles my mind. So if over the next couple of weeks he can show that he can take more walks or is getting successful hits when he's in batters counts and late in batters counts, and the numbers are progressing on top of that, like he's drawing more walks, in particular, he needs to draw more walks. But even if he's just more successful with his bat with like three balls on the count, then I'll still be skeptical, but it maybe will make me a little, little bit more calm. All right, Adam. Well, we always appreciate having you on. Adam Kaplan, Sox on 35th. Been a contributor over here for a long time. Uh, where can we follow you on Twitter? And uh, do you have anything in the works for an, uh, another article moving forward? Yeah, uh, I've made couple podcast appearance over the years and no one else has followed me on Twitter because of them. But if you want to be the first, it's at millennial socks, M I L L E N N I A L S O X. Um, I joke about Michael Swart at the beginning. He's actually become a good friend of mine. I think we're maybe going to have, uh, some fun prospect stuff coming out in a couple of weeks. Fingers crossed, uh, should be a lot of fun. And honestly, I've just become like a Barons fan since like everyone got traded away. So like starting paying attention more to them. So uh, go Birmingham. Thanks for having me on guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Not a problem, Adam. It's always a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have for this week's episode of the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at SoxOn35th. Stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski. Nick Gower will be back with us next week to cover another week of White Sox baseball. Thank you. Carlton Fisk was right, and go Sox!
Find some leaders. Go Sox!